Well, since he's here, I guess I'll let him talk. Welcome Sean back. You ready? Let's pray. Father God, I need you. We need you. We seek you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for those facilities. We thank you for concerned Christians of Mesa, Arizona, all the speakers who have uh, spent a lifetime in preparation for uh, what they had to say today. We pray it will rest in our hearts, give us comfort and direction when the time arises for us to share you with others. We pray that you will motivate us by the spirit of truth to move forward in truth now, uh, that we will um, set aside those things that have beguiled us in the past, whether it's a life of sin, whether it's being beguiled by uh, false philosophies, the philosophies of men, religion, practices, we pray now that you will help us to set them aside. And when we walk out of this building, Lord, you will empower us with um, a fresh direction that maybe some of us have avoided in the past. We pray that we will test all things according to your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The term anti-Mormon was used for the first time in a Louisville, Kentucky newspaper just three years after Joseph Smith formed his church in the spring of 1830, from E. Uh, e. Well, the Edber D. Howe's Mormonism Unveiled to the work of Dr. Walter Martin and Wesley Walters and Gerald and Sandra Tanner, from Fawn Brody to Ed Decker, from the street preachers in Manti to concerned Christians here in Mesa, Arizona, Mormonism certainly has not gone uncontested. But like all fallen worldly empires, the human institution has only grown until now. With the advent of the internet, the true details of Mormonism culled and tirelessly disseminated by our forefathers and foremothers in ministry have gone today from being ignored and dismissed and the rhetoric of hate to taking root in the heart of many LDS. According to a number of very reliable reports, more and more people who have given their all to being a Latter-day Saint are quickly becoming Latter-day Aints. People who ain't gonna embrace the Joseph's myth anymore. Once bitten, but now twice shy, this has left those who have left Mormonism, if they haven't abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ, in a most ironic state of affairs as they seem to stand in the very same place Joseph Smith reportedly stood in 1820, wanting to know which church is true. Which church to join? Or which represents Jesus Christ and what he brought to this earth best? So while the dissemination of reliable information must continue by people who are involved in that and led by God, and as a means to counter the idiocy promulgated by farms and fairs and the Jeff Lindsay's of the internet, I would strongly suggest that the remainder of us focus and prepare to clean our own house. Whether it's revision, reassessment, 
reevaluation, ah, perhaps the best word, revolution. Entire abject revolution. Looking at the history of Christ's true church and contrary to what most modern preachers and pastors and evangelical leaders would say today, religious revolution is not foreign to Christianity. It is, I would suggest, expected, demanded, due to the fallen world needed as a means to keep the church healthy. On a cold October night in 1517, an Augustinian monk dressed in black made his way through the cobbled streets of a town called Wittenberg. Seeking truth, he too had come to the conclusion, having observed the religion of his day, that he had had enough. All you have to do is read Roland Baton's book, uh, uh, Here I Stand, the biography of Martin Luther, and you'll understand the drive behind this man. He nailed, he nailed into the sacred wood of the doors of the castle at Wittenberg his complaints. Ninety-five complaints to be exact. His name, of course, Martin Luther. And though brave and part of what I believe was God's plan for the salvation of few be there that find it, Luther, because he was only willing to go so far, only went so far leaving hundreds and hundreds of other reformers to try and complete what he didn't finish, leaving us where we are today. But God has always had a remnant. In the very same year that Luther boldly ignited what we call the Protestant Reformation, there was another group of men, small in number, living not too far away in the Swiss Alps, They were fed up with what the church demanded and did in their day. Unlike Luther, however, who refused to give up a number of sacredly held man-made ideas which were not biblical, this group were determined at the risk and the reality of their very lives to not embrace one single philosophy or practice of man mixed with scripture. For whatever reason, where Luther continued to honor and perform infant baptisms... Catholic-inspired masses, and a number of other non-biblical religious practices, these men, pejoratively named the Anabaptists at the time, rejected out of hand all Catholic icons, infant baptisms, the established church-state relationship, the mass, teachings on purgatory, and most dangerously, all ecclesiastical authority, choosing instead to live by what the New Testament said alone, and nothing else. For 300 years, these few be there that find it Christians were maligned, they were imprisoned, they were attacked, condemned, and martyred by the thousands. Mormons talk about the people who died. What do we see? 10? 20 martyred? The thousands, these Anabaptists, were lined up and killed by the Catholics and the Protestants alike. Choosing to embrace only the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are they today? Is there a remnant who, too, looking out over the sea of unconscionable religious practices tied to our Lord, are they out there saying enough is enough? I'm going to preach to you today, if you haven't been able to tell, 
If religious history tells us anything, some of you will hear what I have to say, and it will mean nothing to you. You will get up and think that your merry way is perfect and fine. You'll continue to accept non-biblical practices because you have been lulled to sleep by the enchanters who, per, who stick them out to you, and you'll think that all is well. Some of you will reject the message out of hand. You will reject what I have to say with almost visceral disdain because it will strike to the core of beliefs you have long held true. I will challenge you. I will make you mad. Please rent your clothing outside. If history is correct, however, there may be a few in this audience who not only hear what I have to say, but you will check to see if what I have to say is true by the word of God. And then you will change. That is my hope and prayer. That you in this audience, I've done this before, will go and check and see if what I say is right according to him and him alone. Reject me, reject what I say until proven. But if proven, change. Let me start by presenting two biblical conclusions every Bible believer ought to maintain. The first conclusion, which we must admit here today if we consider ourselves to be Bible-believing Christians, is that because of Adam, the world fell and remains in a darkened state of sin. All of us were born in sin, separated from the mind and will of God, alienated from him, needing reconciliation, rebirth. Now, if you were to walk into any major metropolis in the world today, from London to Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Mesa, into any Starbucks, and ask almost any modern human being about the state of man, nine times out of ten, you will hear, we're all good. Everyone's a child of God. God loves us all. All paths are acceptable. As long as a person is trying to do good. If this is true, we can take those Bibles and throw them away. We can throw Jesus away. We can throw his claims away. We can throw his teachings and his sacrifices away. We should open up our arms to this entire world and say, it's all good. This philosophy is an altogether natural philosophy from the heart of men and women, from the hippies to the humanists to the atheists to the Eastern religions, the university professors, special interest groups, to the growing ecumenical factions out there. Men, women, and children are adopting a one world. Everything is good. All roads lead to heaven. Don't exclude or offend everybody. Let's join hands and sing Kumbaya Mindset. It's very satisfactory to the human soul because it makes us feel so advanced and so progressive and so educated, even more loving. Because it makes us face our own sinful capabilities and say, we're all good, therefore I'm not responsible. The philosophy, however, takes God's singular, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, few be there that finds it, and says it's too demanding, it's too limiting, and worst of all in this day and age, it's just not loving enough. So our first conclusion is this world has fallen into a darkened state of sin, and everyone on it is condemned until they receive God Almighty's singular solution to this fallen state, his son. Got that? Agreed? Our second conclusion is, from the Christian perspective, which is the biblical perspective, is that there is only one 
solution to this fallen world and its condemned state. Not a combination of solutions, not a grace plus works, not multiple saviors, not any semblance of solutions, not a compromise solution, one solution, him. The solution is not social programs aimed at reducing world suffering. Did you know that? The solution is not found in political action committees, the Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or Socialist parties. Hard as it is for some to believe the solution is not include and is not found in good people banding together to fight pornography, homosexuality, divorce, stem cell research, abortion, or any other social sinfulness. The solution is Jesus Christ shared his shed blood, period. And it is only the solution, the preaching, teaching, sharing of this solution with the fallen world that will have any lasting merits upon it. All the other stuff is window dressing and periphery activity to make us feel like we are being Christian. But it has nothing to do with the Christian call on our lives. Don't believe me? Read the New Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, lives lived for Christ Jesus, nothing more. If it was something more, the gospel would include something more. Jesus would have taught his disciples to do something more. Jesus would have done something more. But the bottom line brass tax solution to every collective and individual issue the world faces is Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, much of the body of Christ today much of American evangelicalism has somehow lost sight of this biblical directive to share and exemplify Jesus and Jesus alone and has instead chosen to take on three approaches generally to respond to this fallen world. First, it is chosen to fight. Politically and even in the streets against world evil as a means to collectively overcome it. Very popular in this state. Secondly, it has chosen to join the world in all that it affords as a means to appeal to those who are in it. And third, it has sought to clasp hands with non-Christian empires in an effort to appear loving and pluralistic and open. Let me talk about these three errant courses the church has taken, and let's look first at the popular and ever-growing Christian drive to fight the sin and sinfulness of this world politically and even in the streets. Let me ask you something. Who are we as followers of Christ? Who are we? How does the Bible define the identity of believers collectively and individually? There's a story told in Islamic circles of a lion pup that was one day separated from its mother and wound up in a herd of sheep. It was there raised to adulthood, believing in time that he too was a sheep. One day the lion club, fully grown now, was located by its mother and quickly realized, who quickly realized that her cub, now a full-grown lion, uh, had a severe identity crisis. She wondered what to do, so she led her large child to a pond and told him to look at his reflection in the still, still clear water. And here, the lion realized for the first time in its existence that uh, Islamic teachers say that it was not at all a sheep, 
but a great meat-eating lion of the jungle. Using this illustration, Muslims teach a simple principle to their adherents. We are not sheep. We are lions. Somehow, Christians today have come to believe the same thing about themselves and in different ways. But this is certainly not the biblical message, is it? In fact, the Bible in many ways conveys the exact opposite story to Christians. A lamb was lost in the jungle and was miraculously raised up by a pride of lions. In time, the lamb began to believe that it was a ferocious king of the jungle. One day, a shepherd found the now fully grown sheep and looked, uh, took him out from among the lions and took him to a reflecting pool of living water and said, sheep, look in that reflection. And when it did, it saw for the first time its true identity, a sheep. Not a lion, but a harmless, humble, defenseless, stupid incapable sheep whose life was now, ev- now and forever altered by the direction of the shepherd. When our true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, walked this earth, he went to great lengths to avoid using his person for power and political means. Even when men tried to make him the immediate solution to overcoming Ugly social evil. And you don't know ugly evil until you look at Roman evil. Jesus didn't address it. Instead, he did what he came to do and taught that the world needs him spiritually, not physically. Certainly, our king fed the hungry masses. We, too, are commanded to do this in his name. And certainly, he was in great favor for helping and serving anyone in physical need. We do not put that by us. But he was quick to inform all who ate of the miracle loaves of real bread that they ought to rather seek for the bread of life because anyone who eats of that true bread, they will never find themselves hungry again. Every time the world misinterpreted Jesus and his mission and therefore sought to make him an earthly king and, 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 and a leader of moral reformation, he refused the election. Consider John 6.15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. Why? Why did he depart from being made an earthly political king? The answer is found in a dialogue he had with Pilate shortly before his death. Standing before this procurator of Rome, Jesus said plainly, My kingdom is not of this world. Throughout Scripture, there's a clear delineation made between the kingdoms of this world which surround us and his kingdom, which is not. According to Scripture, the two literally have nothing to do with each other in terms of how they operate. Stop rationalizing it. They have nothing to do. I got a $100 bill somewhere, probably in a savings account. But there's a $100 bill that I'll give to any of you that can show me in the New Testament where there is a call on the Christian life to be involved in politics and try to overcome and magistrate this world through political action. Show it to me where Jesus taught, where Paul taught, where Peter taught. It's not there at all. 
Where the world says sue, litigate, make demands, seek retribution, Jesus taught the opposite. Consider Matthew 5.40 where he said, If any man will sue you at the law, give him your coat for your coat. Let him have your cloak also. Where the world says if someone hits you, you hit them back. Jesus said, Matthew 5.39, resist not evil. Resist not evil. Have you, do we remember this in our lives? I mean, he's, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. Every minute of every day, the world tells its menus to focus on making money and to accumulate wealth and to, and to store up and to be materially successful, to name it and claim it, to blab it and grab it. Jesus says, don't worry about it at all. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And where the world, with its armies and its power brokers and its, and, 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 and its political forces chant, Might makes right. Jesus tells us to be meek and lowly and of humble hearts. And to focus our eyes on a kingdom to come. In fact, John the Beloved said in 1 John the unbelievable words, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this world. Is it possible, normative, even expected, for genuine followers of Christ to be actively involved participants in or even against the things of this present world? Are we commanded to fight against it, legislate against it, picket it, protest it? Should believers be seeking wealth, fame, worldly possessions? Is it our duty as recipients of everlasting life to make war with a world already gone bad? To fight against all social evil? to battle corrupt governments, or to threaten worldly institutions and ideologies of evil with collective economic sanctions if they don't do what we want them to do? Is this how we are? Is this how Christians are supposed to be known? I would strongly suggest that if you answer in your mind or heart yes to these things, you have made an error in understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ. Ask yourselves this, honestly. Are Christians today known more for their undying faith in God and love for all people, or are we known more for being against social evils like homosexuality, abortion, pornography, evolution, divorce, gay marriage, border control, and stuff like that? How are we generally seen by the world at large, at least here in America? It's not it's not by the former. Our honest answer provides us with some indication of how far we have strayed from the purpose and point of being genuine Christians by embracing a culture of Christianity that has been heaped upon us by faithless, fearful, lukewarm body of leaders. Remember the words of Christ's Great Commission. I know you remember them. Go ye forth, be ye politically active, gay, hate, and fight their ways all your days, and prove your holiness, brothers. Get out there and show the world how great you are and how messed up they are. Remember those words? Yea, go forth and picket and, and, and blow up abortion clinics. For goodness sake, blow them to smithereens because they're evil and we need to show them that. Boycott McDonald's for their fat-laden food. 
boycott Carl's Jr. for their recent ad. Ye fight this world, it's your duty. Ye be smug, prove your holiness. Prove who you are. Get on Facebook and stand up for your rights as a Christian. Or did he say, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And when Jesus said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, what did he mean? What did he command? Do you remember? Did our Lord ever anywhere teach us to rise up and fight people in the streets over ideology or praxis? Did he ever tell his chosen apostles to do anything in the name of politics or to try to govern a world already condemned? Did he teach us to jub, judge or condemn people to hell? Did he ever say, my followers are commanded to morally perfect this earth in any way? Be salt and light? Yeah, that's our duty, but nothing else. In fact, I challenge you here and now, provide me with the passage that says anything but to suffer, teach his word, walk in faith, and love. We call John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another. These things I command you, he says in John 15, that you love one another. A new commandment, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I loved you. The sinners, the whores, the adulteress caught in the very act doesn't even mention abortion people, doesn't mention homosexuals, doesn't mention pedophiles, doesn't mention divorce except in one place contextually, doesn't go after the social evil. The world's already condemned. He didn't come to judge it. He came to save it. Our, message, our, our desire is to share him. Remember, Scripture says, If a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? How on earth have we as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus ever allowed the body of Christ or the church to be tacitly represented by these, these political action committees and their talking heads and those people who use his name for their little purposes? Where are Christians in the New Testament ever told to do this? Nowhere. And yet every single day, almost without fail, our ministry receives an email from some well-meaning believer whining about and fearfully fighting against and fretting over the collective loss of rights that we have as Christians. They just fret and fret that we're losing our rights. Turn to almost any Christian radio station in America today, and you're sure to hear some host frothing on and on and on about standing up for our rights, our rights to wear crosses, our right to public prayer, our right to protest at family planning clinics, our right to free speech on public grounds. You got to act now, brother. You got to get out there, brothers and sisters. Call your congressman. Jesus is relying on you to do it. You got to do it because he wants you to do it. Oh, I almost said a bad word. <laughs> what does the Bible say our rights, like the Anabaptists completely understand, what did they say our rights are as believers? Jesus said it in Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when men shall hate you. And when they shall separate you, that doesn't seem just or right, from their company and shall reproach you, 
and cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Not because you're some idiot, but it's for the Son of Man's sake. Standing before Pilate, Jesus was asked, are you a king? He replied, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. From this exchange, we learn from Jesus himself that his kingdom's not of this world, the one that we belong to, and proof of this is that if his kingdom was, his servants would be embroiled in fights. Pilate then repeats the question, asking the Lord again, are you a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest I am, which means yes, I am. Then he says, to this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. From these words we realize even more about the Lord and our duty in following him. Jesus certainly is a king. To this end, he says, was I born. Then he explains what his birth and his ministry were all about, saying, For this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And we as believers know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so as followers, we bear witness of him. Of him. Of him. So that's the first problem. Many in modern evangelical church have chosen to fight politically and even in the streets against world evil and sin as a means to collectively overcome it rather than humbly and lovingly sharing Jesus as the singular solution to it. The second path modern evangelical Christianity has taken from which all believers ought to refuse is a path that beats right to the things of this world. Instead of individuals having difficulty taking root due to the cares and riches of the world in our day, it is the church itself who has chosen to embrace this world and all that it loves and adores. It means as a means to be relevant and cool and hip and with it in an effort to keep with the pulse and verb of modern man and how modern man thinks and lives. Here are the phases of this process, folks. The pastor has a vision it's a big vision, big budgets, big buildings, big congregation, because in his mind, bigger is better. Included in his vision is a big church, with a big with all of its accoutrements of the world, big bookstores and coffee houses that look like they're in a cave, and, and hip and expensive lounges. Everything is cool. Hairstyles are cool. Everything's rad. The bathrooms are granite and gold. The seats have cushioned armrests, and the lobby is 10 times the size of an open-air international airport. There's big screens hanging from everywhere, big theatrical productions, highly stylized graphics, touting the fact that they can, in fact, stop hunger in Africa if the people would just give, not to the people in Africa, but to the church. Phase two, for the pastor... To both see his big vision come alive and then to keep it alive, which is much more difficult. Senior pastor has to fill the seats week in and week out. That's a lot of big seats. Billboard marquees, therefore, cannot say things like, come and join us as we read the word of God verse by verse. But instead say things like, Jesus loves tattoos. And this Sunday, come and meet the author of the shack. 
So to keep the masses coming back, two things need to happen. They've got to be bloody entertaining. And they have got to make the next experience more viable than the last. This translates into muscle men ripping telephone books in half for Jesus and a circus of motocross and skateboard and BMX ramps built behind the puppet, by the, behind the pulpit, while the pastor talks about these guys who are doing these feats are all believers. Bigger sound, bigger lights, bigger screens with Christian rock stars belting out songs with the delivery and style of Metallica and with the passion of Coldplay or with a cute indie little folk singer girl singing songs like, Jesus, you're my boyfriend. You'll never break up with me. (laughs) Jesus, you're my homeboy. And the crowd cheers louder and louder, arms raised, apparently worshiping the men standing in front of them, but really worshiping Jesus, their boyfriend, their homeboy. And the money is gathered because you got to have that money to keep the cycle alive for the big vision of the big church with the big people and their big fat heads. And there's no discipleship. And you sneak in and you sneak out. And cheap grace pumps through the veins of the majority of the people in there. And they do not understand what Jesus gave his life for. It breaks my heart. It angers me to no end. And in that December of last year, when we went to every church, the 10 largest churches in Utah, and we observed what I just described, there was a fog machine. And a guy who was my age with hair coming out of his shirt like me got up there and I thought he was John Bon Jovi singing about Jesus. What has happened? Why have we allowed it? How come no one stands up and says, I'm leaving? I'm not going to do this. Instead, more and more and more file in. Where are the Anabaptists? Where are the John the Baptists? Are we so far gone that righteous indignation is a sign of of being judgmental now? I'm not going to even try and touch on the insanity of the faith healers and the prosperity teachers and the dogmatism that, that thrives in relative to eschatology and Calvinism and Arminianism and this intellectual progress and that, that new trend in the church. In the face of it all, is there any wonder why guys like Joseph Smith and Russell, Chaz, Charles Russell and, and, and Ellen G. White and, and Armstrong and Jim Jones and David Koresh are able to do what they do, are able to say, look around you, where is truth? Finally, and the third response many in modern evangelical Christian churches have taken as an effort to unify with this world and to assimilate and to bring more in, which was never the church's job. Church's job is to, to shepherd the flock. The, the, the missional efforts of missionaries bring believers. The believers join the church. You, they never in the early church joined the church as non-believers and going to church there learn to become uh, a believer. You're always a believer before you're allowed into the inner sanctum. Always in the early church. Now the church has become the, the receptacle to try to convert people. And that's all they do, week in and week out. Well, the third thing they're trying to do is join hands with non-Christian empires in an effort to appear educated and advanced and pluralistic. It's called ecumenism. And more than any other plight of the modern-day church, it appears to be the one 
that has the broadest amount of endorsement. The problem begins with the errant focus in the first place. You see, when the errant belief exists that the Christian duty is to protect and save the world from evil, the secondary response is to say there's power in numbers. Let's join hands with the good Mormons. Let's join hands with the good uh, these guys. Let's join hands with the good of that as a community representing God to stand against this evil world. And uh, when the Christian church begins to have a close relationship with the peas of this world, the people and the policies and the practices and the politics, the dangers to the church are far greater than any imagined or supposed benefits. When our three daughters were young, I used to share a simple illustration to help them understand the value of good associations and the difficulty with contamination. I would ask them something bromidic like, um, clean will always lose when it meets with dirty. Clean always loses when it meets with dirty. Well, what does that mean, Daddy, they would ask, halfway bored. Um, and to illustrate the point, I would say, imagine two big pails, girls, like the ones we use to clean the cars with. And imagine that uh, one pail is full of crystal clear, pure, absolutely beautiful water. And the other one is filled with horrible, gross, the smelliest, dirtiest, filthiest sewage you've ever seen in your life. And I would ask the girls, what would happen if I took a cup of clean water from that pail and poured it into the bucket full of sewage? Would it make it clean? No, 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 they'd say, that's sick. And, and then I'd say, what if we took maybe this whole bucket and, and had a big container and mixed it in with the sewage? Would that clean water be okay to drink? No, no, no. What if we took a swimming pool full of water and we mixed it in with that sewage? Would you drink it? Oh, I don't think so. What if we took the Pacific Ocean and you poured all that sewage into the Pacific Ocean? Would you go in there and drink it? Yeah. You drink Pacific Ocean water? No. And then, and then you say, it's still polluted, isn't it? It takes so much clean to make dirty right. But flip it over, girls. What if we took that sewage and we took one little drop and we put it in that bucket? Would you drink from that water? No. Even though it's a whole bucket of pure, clean water? No. Can you see how little bit dirty does it clean? I'd say, what if you were in a really white dress and you went over to the park and there's a huge mud puddle that comes when it rains and there's a bunch of boys from your school and they're having a mud fight. How long would it take for you to get that beautiful dress splotched with dirt? Not very long. You get a speck somewhere, right? Yeah, you would. But what if you went and you changed your clothes and you took your dress and you tried to clean up that mud with your dress? What would it do? Nothing. You see the principle? It takes nothing to contaminate. Nothing at all. And yet we're willing in the body to do it. Let me give you a case in Living Point. As a whole, a person would be hard-pressed to find a better gathering of moral, hard-working people than the collective, collective members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As a whole, again... They are highly organized and thrifty. They encourage clean living. And the institution stands firmly behind what Americans have come to call um, American family traditional values. 
In California, where the state had been pushing to legalize homosexual marriages, the LDS Church led the way in fighting against this social corruption by rallying their members to publicly and monetarily stand up, and stand up they did. Pulling from vast amounts of wealth and human resources, the LDS collectively fought against what was called Proposition 8 and 1 for the time being. Conservative Christian groups focused on fighting world evil have praised the LDS for standing up to these sound Christian for these sound Christian values and for their willingness to express them at the risk of great public backlash. Slowly and apparently inspired by the good work the LDS have exemplified, Bible-believing Christians have stepped in from the sidelines and joined the fray, deluding themselves that the, with the notion that they too can help change or save the world while forgetting the true call upon our lives, uh, which is to share Christ. But isn't it incumbent, Sean, upon us, the believers will ask, the Christian moralists present, isn't it incumbent, you know, as believers and followers of Christ to unite with good people and rise up against social evil. I turn to the Bible, not the Old Testament, different economy, different people. I turn to the New Covenant. You tell me. Give me the passage. It's not. Not in the least. Never has been. The basis of Christianity is not goodness. It's Jesus came and saved the bad. And when we lose that perspective, whether we're a mature Christian in Christ or a brand new babe in Christ, we have made a tremendous error in our thinking. And while we certainly agree with the Mormon church that social evil and sin is on the rise and it must not be embraced and endorsed by any follower of Christ, the Christian solution, our response, ought to be how we respond to things spiritually. Not physically. Specifically, if a Christian is repulsed by the things of this falling world, shouldn't the response be one of collective prayer, fasting, sharing more love with the lost, not fighting them in the halls of justice? Ephesians 6.12 make it plain, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are talking about prince of the power of the air. We are not talking about a physical engagement, which Christians have made the mistake of thinking that it is. It is a spiritual warfare, not flesh and blood. And so we pray and we fast and we do what Jesus did to overcome the temptations that came his way. With the victory of temporarily stopping gay marriages in California under the belt, the Mormon church in many forms gained favor in the Christian community as a whole, and this meets their long-term desires perfectly. And it's our own damned fault because we have allowed ourselves to believe and equate Christianity with morality and are sanctifying the world through moral legislation, even though our own king had nothing to do with it. Seeing a chink in the Christian armor, Mormonism has responded by initiating an all-out campaign for their errant faith to now be seen as normative and hopefully Christian. One of the nation's most popular television commentators, Glenn Beck, a faithful Latter-day Saint, has led a national charge across the nation for Americans to reclaim their liberties and restore the country to its former self. And for his efforts, he has been hailed far and wide by otherwise astute Christian leaders as brave and part of the Christian call. Baloney. 
And yet men like Bet and groups like Mormonism are more and more becoming acceptable to our hard-won Christian ideals, even though the Bible emphatically rejects their extreme and dangerous doctrines as crazy. Can you see how lost we have become by assimilating with the world, even with part of the world that does good things? Can you see how these stupid Christian attempts at apparently achieving goodness have actually helped the church to become more corrupt? Since, going back to our first consideration, he is the only solution to the problem. We've lost our way. And we've scrambled to rediscover it through moral reformation, political policy, worldly appeals, phony philosophies, and in the case of our alliances with the Mormons, by embracing beguiling demagogues who appear Christian, but who worship at the altar of an altogether different God with an altogether different gospel. A little over a year ago, 40 leaders from the National Association of Evangelical Leaders gathered in Park City, Utah for their first annual board meeting. It was the first time in their 100-year history they ever agreed to meet in the state of Utah. A local, politically motivated Christian leader who believes his friendship and alliance with the LDS leaders is doing something helped arrange it. Regarding this gathering where the newspaper excitedly announced that possibly an LDS apostle would actually attend, Leith Anderson, NAE president, said, quote, For the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we seek to represent biblical evangelicalism to those who wouldn't hear or know. We also look for common ground on issues where we can work together. Really. Common ground where we can work together. What does the Bible say about seeking common ground with unbelievers? Did John the Baptist or Jesus seek common ground with the enemies? Did Peter seek common ground with Simon Magnus for buying the power of God? Did an Anabaptist agree to common ground to the religious powers that be? Never. We will never placate this world. We will never assimilate its endless and multifarious false doctrines or meld its people into moral people, push them into the kingdom of heaven through religion. We have to take another means. Rise up. Demand that your church teach the word. Keep itself unspotted from the world. Refuse the hand of fellowship with Baal or Belial and embrace any suffering that may come as a result. This is Christianity and few be there that find it. I trust that you are one of them. For a moment, I'm taking off my concerned Christian's hat, speaking for myself. I don't know if Sean is a prophet to our Christian culture, but I hope he is. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you to all of our speakers. Um, We hope to do this again, hopefully next year. Um, We're blessed. We're thankful. Um, Concerned Christians is moving. Put that hat back on. Concerned Christians is moving forward, uh, undaunted by um, financial difficulties, um, um, 
always ready to witness to Mormons, to help those that are coming out, and they're coming out in droves, like Chip said. Um, if you want to be a part of what Concerned Christians does, come to us. We would love for your, to, to get your help. Uh, we would love you to do whatever you do um, that would help the ministry, mostly to help those who are coming out, which is what our focus is. Um, I guess I can't think of it. Are there any questions? I can't think of anything else to say except that um, uh, God bless you. Have a great day. Have a great day tomorrow. Think about things Sean just said and maybe talk to some people at your church about stuff like this. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for coming.